Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Before we look at his word. Lord God, we come before you again as people always in need. And we have the need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And even as believers, Lord, we, we need this incre- ever-increasing ability uh, by uh, the presence of your Spirit to hear correctly and to see as we ought to see. So help us, Lord, and enable me to communicate your truth and the power of your Spirit for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Apologize about the... Uh, on your bulletin, as the wrong text, it says Matthew 8. Obviously, it's Mark 8. My apologies. Um, if we were um, to survey um, a large, diverse group of people, you know, to take a poll, um, capturing them in an unguarded, um, relaxed moment, and we, we raised the question or we presented the question, um, who do you say Jesus is? Or what do you think about Jesus? Um, You can be sure um, there would be a wide variety of responses. Um, The most popular of which would be, according to polls that have been taken, and according to my own personal experience when, when asking this question, you'll hear something like, oh, he was a great man, a great teacher a moral religious leader. Others will say he's the highest form of mankind, uh, one of the ways to God, a mighty prophet, or a supreme angel. Often you'll hear a sentimental response, referring to him as a nice, kind, warm heartfelt Jesus who uh, just wants to be sure everybody gets to heaven. And of course, he does not judge. Others think of him in keeping with traditionalism, the Jesus of Christmas and Easter. And then there are those who, who think of him and even pray to him Um, When they're in trouble, he's not part of their life or part of their life practice, but he's only appealed to in circumstances of difficulty. For them, Jesus is a good luck charm. It's kind of like the Jesus that Paul Newman sings about in the movie Cool Hand Luke. 
Remember that as he's strumming the banjo? I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I've got my plastic Jesus <laughs> sitting on the dashboard of my car. Right? A good luck charm, Jesus. The rabbit's foot redeemer. Pocket-sized, handy. His specialty? Getting you out of trouble. Need a parking place? (laughs) Need help on a quiz? Your wish is his command. Few demands. No challenges. No sacrifice, no need for commitment. He's there to serve you. Now, although we would hear all kinds of responses out there, this morning, let us do our interview in here. Because according to the text, Jesus didn't go out there. I mean, yes, he inquired of his disciples, who do people say that I am? But that was only to set them up for the real question. Who do you say that I am? Right? Now, it's important for us to ask ourselves that question. Well, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Good, it's very good you ask yourself this question this morning because love for Christ turned cold is the forerunner to spiritual apathy, which eventually leads to a love for the world and compromise and a reconsideration and, and even a, a redefining, although you'd never admit it, as to who Jesus really is. Years before, it was Jesus Christ, crucified Lamb of God, is the only way to the Father, And now it's a reconsideration within, Mm, that sounds a little too narrow. Perhaps all roads lead to God so long as one is sincere. Some nonsense like that. So let us interview ourselves. That's the introduction. So now, here, um, we enter into a very pivotal point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us, We've been going through Mark's gospel, coming up on a year, I believe. But here we are at a very pivotal point. Some writers have said that this, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, is, is such a significant point historically that it could be referred to as the continental divide of Mark's gospel. That is... Everything before this is leading up to this point, and everything that follows falls from this point, leading straight to the cross. Now, remember, Mark's announcement in chapter 1, verse 1, is as follows. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, Paul or Mark rather says, I'm writing the beginning of the embodiment of God's gospel. Now, the gospel of God, friends, begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Because scripture itself is God's progressive revelation of himself. But here, when Jesus comes on scene, what we see is the embodiment of the gospel. 
Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God, came to earth to redeem sinners back to God. He's the God-man. He is the gospel incarnate. That's Mark's message. So, from that point, Mark 1 verse 1, all the way up to this point, Mark's goal is is to get his readers to see that truth. To hear that truth and believe that truth, that Jesus is the royal anointed one. Jesus is God's Christ. He is the Messiah. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. He is the promised one, the Messiah. Now, we, as believers living on this side of the cross, have been privileged to have such insight since Mark chapter 1, verse 1. But, friends, think about this. These disciples are trying to decipher all the details as they follow Jesus and they hear him teach and preach and they witness him casting out demons and confronting his enemies, the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees. So all through chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is demonstrating the fact that he is Christ. He is the incarnate Son of God. Now, remember, thus far, we have only heard two voices, without any doubt, testify to that truth. The first voice is from God the Father, who spoke from heaven when Jesus was baptized, where we hear, you are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. Now, the other voice or we should say plurality of voices, come from the demonic realm itself, from demons. Demons rightly understood who Jesus was. And when he walked in the room, they began to cry out, we know who you are, the son of the living God. But up to this point, right, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 8, verse 29, no human being voices that truth in rightly identifying Jesus as who he is. So for eight chapters, Jesus, thus far we have seen, has demonstrated the fact that he has unlimited power over everything. Okay? In demonstrating the fact that he is the Son of God, we've seen, he's shown, that he has power over the demonic realm, power over nature, power over sickness, power over disease, and power over death itself. There's no realm over which he does not have absolute authority. And when he calmed the storm, you'll remember back in chapter 4 in verse 41, uh, the disciples were terrified for their lives and Jesus was fast asleep on a pillow. They were worried they're going to lose their lives. They wake Jesus up and said, do you not what? Do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus stands up and he speaks to nature and there's immediate calm. Their response? They were more terrified then than they were before he calmed the storm. And what was their question? Who then is this, they said, that even the wind and sea obey? Okay, but still, knowing as they did, they were Jewish boys, Jewish young men, knowing as they did that only God calms the winds and waves, who Jesus is to them at this point 
still is not registering. Jesus moves on. He feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with a few loaves and a few fish. He distributes them by way of the disciples. They witness firsthand that he miraculously multiplies them through his hands. And they hand it out. And they go away. On another occasion, Jesus is about to feed 4,000 men plus women and children. And what do they ask? Lord, how are you going to do this? How are we going to feed all these people? Now, he picked up 12 baskets of leftovers when he fed the 5,000. Picked up seven after feeding the 4,000. He feeds 4,000 in the Decapolis. He feeds 5,000 in Bethsaida. And then following that feeding of the 4,000, he sails to Delmanutha. And he's confronted and accosted by the Pharisees. Okay, now follow me. It's a little review. He's accosted by the Pharisees. He has an interchange with them. And they demand a sign from heaven to prove that he's the Christ. And in verse 13, frightening passage, he left them. He left them not only in their place, but he left them in the position of their hardened hearts. And then they made their way northeast to Bethsaida, which means house of fish. It's a fishing village like all the villages were in the Galilee. And while en route, Mark informs us that the disciples, they forgot to reprovision the boat. Jesus uses the occasion to warn the 12 about the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and that a little bit of yeast infects the whole lump. And that was a warning to be mindful of their sinfulness, that is their unbelief, and the trappings of legalism, liberalism, and secularism. They scratch their head and say, Jesus is mad because we forgot bread. Right? Again, not remembering, if, look, if there's a shortage of bread, he just fed 5,000 and 4,000. You're not getting it. You do not see. You do not hear. And in verse 18, he says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? What's the answer to that? Yes. Yeah, we have ears, but we don't hear. And we have eyes, but we do not see. That is the true identity of Jesus. Okay, are you with me? Okay, now, it's no coincidence, friends, that the healing of the deaf man, the deaf man in the Decapolis in Mark chapter 7, and the healing of this blind man here in chapter 8 in Bethsaida, it's no coincidence that they're placed where they are in the Gospel of Mark because what they do is they frame for us what follows as we enter into this section of Scripture. And that is the disciples' own spiritual blindness and deafness is framed right here by a man who is deaf and a man who is blind. They're deaf and blind as to the true purpose of Jesus. Now, as we briefly touched on last time, just as it took miraculous intervention in this blind man for him to see, it's also going to take miraculous intervention, that is, of Almighty God in the lives of these disciples if they're going to be able to see with eyes of faith. Same is true for you.
Same is true for me. So here's Mark thus far. He has recorded for us 14 individual miracles, mostly healings. And in addition to that, we read that Jesus also healed many others. We read that in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. He healed many. Now, in all of them, we've observed a perfect healing ministry, correct? 100% success rate thus far. 100%. So here, we'd expect the same. Jesus just speaks, and things happen. Jesus just speaks, and demons are cast out. Jesus speaks, and people are healed. Jesus speaks, people are raised from the dead. But here, this is a significant miracle unlike any other. And it's not so much in the kind of miracle, but the process of the miracle. That is Jesus' procedure in healing this man. Notice verse 22. And then they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man. And they begged him to touch him. Okay, so far so good. This is the usual situation. When people hear that Jesus is on scene, they flock to him in mass. They've all heard about the miraculous power of Jesus. So this small group within the larger group hurries their blind friend into the presence of Jesus because he know, they know he's his only, their only hope. The only hope. So the encounter right, starts out just like any other encounter we've studied thus far until we get to the end of verse 23 and we encounter something very different. Notice. So he takes the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? We read that and we, we wonder, is he really wondering? Is Jesus really inquiring here? Something that he does not know? And, and the man looked up, verse 24, he says, well, uh, it's foggy. I mean, I see men, uh, but they look like trees walking. Okay, what does this tell us? This tells us that the man wasn't born blind. Um, he possessed sight at some time in his life. And he's able to know the difference between people and trees. Verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything what? Clearly. He were the day. Clearly. So this healing of the Lord was accomplished in stages. Why? One of three reasons. Number one, Jesus misdiagnosed this man's condition. It's your first option. Secondly, um, he was losing power. His power was waning. Or, number three, he did it this way intentionally. He did it this way intentionally. (laughs) Again, up to this point, Jesus has demonstrated unlimited power over what? Everything. Everything. Absolute authority over every area that the curse has affected with a simple word. 
So what is the reason then for his intentionality in the healing of this man in stages? Well, it's not to demonstrate that he's doubly compassionate, right? We've seen compassion pour out of Jesus. He's had compassion on the people because as he saw the one crowd, he said they're they're like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion of the fact that many were ill, many were sick, many were diseased. But although Jesus' miracles of healing were an outpouring of of his compassion, beloved, they were never the primary purpose for the primary purpose of demonstrating compassion. That was not his primary purpose. They were primarily to demonstrate his identity and his authority. For instance, in chapter 2, the man who was lame, crippled, remember his friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus is in the house, and the house is packed. They can't get near Jesus, so they go up and climb up the stairs to the roof, and they blast a hole through it, and they lower their friend down on ropes. Remember? When he's lowered down, Jesus, notice, if you remember, was more eager and willing to forgive the man's sins than he was to heal him. He said, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are there. Ah, who's this man? To forg- who, who's he think he is to have authority to forgive the sins of any man? And Jesus asked, what's, what, what's easier? To forgive someone of his sins or to tell the man to rise up and walk? And we read in order to demonstrate that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man, rise, take up your bed, and walk, go home. And what happened? The man did. In chapter 6, feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children was to demonstrate, not his compassion primarily, but to demonstrate the fact that he is bread come down from heaven. The one who provides bread miraculously is he who's come down from heaven. He's the bread of life. This they ought to have seen. So all these miracles communicate something about himself, something about Jesus. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus healed all manner of sickness and disease. But if you focus in and pay attention, the miracles that receive particular attention are the miracles of the restoration of sight and of hearing. Seeing, hearing. So if we go back to the Old Testament and we read the prophets, one thing we understand is that the healing of the blind was a sure sign that the messianic age had dawned. It had dawned. You read that in Psalm 146, Isaiah 29, In Isaiah 35, another sign that the Messianic age had dawned was what? Hello? The deaf would hear. (laughs) The deaf would hear. Listen to this, Isaiah 35.5. The prophet foretells, Then, then, on that day, in that age, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. That's right. I love it that kids listen. Kids listen. Amen. Verse 26, here this man, he sees everything clearly. Messiah, he's here. He sees everything clearly. And notice, Jesus sent him to his home and said, do not even enter the village. Why? 
Jesus doesn't want the miracle broadcast because he knows that it will draw crowds that only want thrills and shrills, right? Jesus knows this. The masses simply want miracles for the sake of miracles. And also, Jesus doesn't want to escalate the hostility of the Pharisees at this point in time because him going to the cross is according to whose timetable? His. His. You know, another thing I thought about this week is very interesting. They're in Bethsaida. Now, remember, Bethsaida is one of the places, one of the cities that Jesus denounces. Remember? He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus provided such a high exposure of himself to those places. In other words, they saw more miracles than anyone else did. And yet they were steeped in unbelief. I'll tell you, to whom much is given, Jesus said, much is required. And you can be sure as you read the scripture that there's levels of punishment in hell. Those who know more, those who've been taught more, and those who reject Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, will suffer more. Fact. Word. So perhaps, perhaps, this this is my own speculation, perhaps that is just a little sign of mercy because the more you know, the more you're responsible for. I don't know. Don't know for sure. What's Jesus doing here? What's Jesus doing? Friends, Jesus is providing here, by way of this healing, an object lesson. Not for the blind man, but for his disciples. This is an object lesson. Note in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. That is Jesus and his disciples. They. When Jesus gets there, he takes the man outside the village. Who, who is with him, obviously? The disciples. The they. Okay? They are with him. So this is not the normal procedure for our Lord. Normally, his miracles were done in the open. But Jesus pulls this man aside. He isolates the blind man because, friends, he wants his disciples to hear what the man says. Okay? Follow me. Now, his eyes, they're given some sight, but not full sight. He sees but not clearly at first, not until the second touch. Okay, Jesus already asked them about their vision and understanding back in verse 18. He asked the disciples, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? I just fed 5,000 and then 4,000, and you're still wondering about bread. Wonder bread, wonder bread. (laughs) Wonder bread. Okay, now he leads them by the hand to the point where their sight will become even more clear, but but not fully clear, okay? Here, then, is that pivotal point. Here, then, is the continental divide of Mark's gospel. This, Act 2, Part 1. We've just spent a number of months in Act 1. Now we're in Act 2, okay? Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So from Bethsaida in the north in Galilee, they travel north from there about 25 miles or so to an area dominated by Rome. Now, this city was built by Herod's son, Philip. 
in honor of Caesar Augustus, therefore Caesarea Philippi. So here they are. This is pagan territory. This is not Jewish territory. He, he, they enter in, and on the way, notice, on the way, he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Obviously, we know that Jesus will frequently ask questions as a means of making a point. So here, using this first question, who do men or outsiders say that I am, is in contrast to verse 29, who do you say that I am? We, we might paraphrase this question, who do unbelievers say? Who do non-Christians say that Jesus is? Now, the, de- the default setting for most people in this day, Jesus' day, was that they wanted to equate Jesus, the Messiah, with some great figure from Israel's past. Now, most frequently in their time, they thought it was John the Baptist come back to life because Herod had him beheaded. So they were tripping, thinking, He's raised from the grave. Others, not so sure, thought Jesus was Elijah. Now, we'll get to the reasoning of that when we get to chapter 9. We're not going to spend time in that today. We'll learn why in chapter 9. And yet others, they thought him to be another prophet in the line of Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Jeremiah. And remember this also, that for more than 700 years, Israel had been oppressed by successive empires, Assyria, the Babylonians, Persia, Greece, and then at this time, Rome. So the people were mistakenly expecting a military conquering Messiah who thought that the first order of business for Messiah would be to destroy Rome. Jesus knows that man's biggest problem is is sin and guilt and its power over them. So his first order of business is to deal with that. Verse 29. And he asked them, okay, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, here it is. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, Matthew, his account, chapter 16, tells us that his accurate response was not a matter of mere examination on the part of Peter that produced his conclusion. It was instead divine revelation granted to Peter, explaining everything that he's observed thus far about Jesus. Matthew 16, 17. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice, flesh and blood. That simply means ordinary human nature, meaning you did not discern this on your own. In other words, it takes God to know God. It takes God to know God. So here, Mark's gospel is a shorter, compressed gospel. It provides us the illustration of that truth. Matthew provides us an explanation of the truth. We see the illustration with the blind man and the deaf man, that only Jesus can unstop the ears, only he can open eyes, and Matthew explains it. My Father from heaven has given you this insight. 
Divine intervention for you and I to be saved? Divine intervention is absolutely necessary in order to have eyes to see and ears to hear correctly. Divine intervention. So here, Mark provides us an illustration. Matthew provides this declaration. The Father has given you this sight. This is what God must grant us. So here now, the time has come for the the disciples to realize who it is that Jesus truly is and what his mission is. And this now provides the dramatic turn. The rest of the focus of Jesus' ministry will be in Jerusalem and that area as they move from Galilee. But even so, here's, here's Peter. Follow me in. Even at this point, Peter has a correct understanding that Jesus is the Christ and he speaks on behalf of the disciples here. Still, his sight is only partial. He still sees something like men walking around that look like trees. He still doesn't see clearly. He's been given some sight, and he's going to be given more sight. Isn't this how it happens to us? Remember that? Do you remember? You, 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 perhaps you mocked the cross. It's folly. And you began to read the scriptures. And you began to come under the conviction that you're a sinner. And you, began, you, you came under the understanding that you have a need for a savior. You started reading the scripture, and your eyes became open. It, it made sense like it never made sense before. You remember that? And then as you proceed, he gives you a little more understanding, a little more understanding, until you come to full understanding of his redeeming love, of his abounding grace. So here, Jesus takes them by the hand, and we move from the transition of the declaration of who he is, as Peter just stated, the Christ, to the significance of his identity, the nature of of his identity. What it means that he is the Christ. What is his mission? Quite simply, his mission? Death. To be slaughtered. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer Many things, and be rejected by the elders of the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And notice now, and this he said what? Plainly. Nothing's veiled now. He says this plainly. Notice, the Son of Man must suffer. In other words, this is divinely ordained. Ordained in eternity past. He must come and suffer. This is what the Old Testament declared. Isaiah, God's servant, would be his suffering. Servant. Peter reasons, hmm, a suffering rejected by the religious sect, Messiah, who's killed? Oh, no, no, no. Not in my world. So Peter, verse 32, takes him aside, and he began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke him. Now, I'm sure Peter feels confident at this point, having just rightly identified Jesus as the Christ. So he's going to pull him aside now, and he's going to straighten him out about his mission. (laughs) You never want to do that. That's a stupid thing to do. God's not like this. 
God's not like that. Don't do that. He rebukes him. So, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So, since Jesus was rebuked by Peter in front of all, he will be corrected in front of all. For their own sake. For their own good. So, the idea of Jesus... To, to, to seek avoiding suffering and humiliation of the cross, what does this recall for us? The temptation of, G, of, of Jesus from Satan in the wilderness. Remember? In Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, what did he say? All the kingdoms will be yours because they've been delivered up to me. Well, Jesus came to claim all kingdoms of the world to himself. We just read that in chapter 5 of the Revelation, amen? But it would not come without his crucifixion. It would not come without his death and resurrection. And Peter seems to have missed the part about his resurrection here. He missed that part, it seems. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because what? Peter, you do not understand God's will. You don't understand my Father's will for your life. I've come to be a substitute for you. To bear God's wrath in your place. That's what the cross is. The propitiation of God. God's wrath is satisfied in crushing His Son in our place. You know, Satan would be delighted to herald the Messiah who does not suffer on a cross and rise from the dead. He'd be the first to say, here, here, go, go, right? You know, far too many pastors in our day have been seduced. Don't miss this if you're church shopping. Far too many pastors in our day have been seduced to preach a Christ without the cross. Seduced. They do everything to bypass a bloody cross because it's so offensive. Of course it's offensive. The cross offends. And they preach this, your best life now nonsense. Or they have sermon series, three steps to a better this, that, or the other. And there's no Christ and there's no cross in it. Run for the hills. You hear? Paul says what they do is they use eloquent words of wisdom and the result of eloquent words of wisdom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, they empty the cross of its power. Words of eloquent wisdom, they empty the cross of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you're here, and you think all this preaching is folly about the cross, guess what? You're perishing now. Repent of that nonsense and see Christ as who he truly is because your soul needs to be saved. You're steeped in folly. Repent and believe and you will be saved. From what? God's wrath 
according to God's grace, for God's glory. See, man-pleasers, men who do not preach the cross, are trying to be man-pleasers, and man-pleasers cannot be servants of Christ because the two are incompatible. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. My ways, they're not your ways. Never empty the cross of its power. You know, a lot of people think themselves to be Christian who only only want Jesus and appeal to Jesus for the sake of their financial business success, for the sake of family success, to having the picture-perfect family on the mantle. That's why I seek after Jesus. Well, your Jesus is a plastic Jesus if that's the only Jesus he is. He's a plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of your car. Take him with you when you travel far. That's the idea. Jesus says, get behind me. Jesus became sin for us, beloved. Jesus came to be condemned. Jesus came to bear the cross because you're a guilty sinner. I'm a guilty sinner. And you're under God's wrath until you come to faith and trust in this Jesus, the biblical Jesus. There's no escape for you. He's the only way because he's the only substitute. This is what he's trying to get through their heads. This is the lesson. See, Peter doesn't understand this yet. His sight is foggy, beloved. He sees men that look like trees. Okay, Jesus is the Christ, but he needs a second touch. He needs a second touch. That's the Lord's lesson after Peter's confession. That's why, notice verse 30. Peter says, we understand you're the Christ. Notice, what does Jesus say? He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? If they rightly identify him as the Christ, why not go preach it, man? Because they only see partially. Jesus is saying, look, it's not yet time for you to declare who I am because your eyes are not fully opened with regard to who I am. If you preach me as you see me now, your hearers will, re- will totally miss the redemptive pur- purposes for which I have come. They'll miss it. Jesus calls for silence to what is true right here because he didn't want he- people to hear facts about him and about his messiahship that they were not ready yet to grasp because then you have a Jesus that you just fill in the blank with. Well, I say, Jesus is like, have you ever done that? I say Jesus is like, look, if your Jesus doesn't line up with the Jesus of the Bible, discard what you think Jesus is like and start looking to this, his word. You will cause people to fill in the blank with their own erroneous ideas about who I am and what I have come to do. So you create a Messiah, you create a Jesus who's there to fulfill all your expectations. False. Because the cross, friends, the cross of Jesus Christ undermines our self-righteousness. And that's what we are in and of ourselves. We're self-righteous. Well, I'm a good person. 
I can stand before God on my own merit. No, you can't. He's the only substitute. Deny him. You have no entry. That's why you must come to the Lord by way of Jesus Christ alone with a broken spirit and a bended knee by way of his grace. And then you realize that he reorients your thinking about him, about you, right? About ourselves, about this earth, about this life, and about eternity. He sanctifies us by way of his what? His truth. Changes everything. And then we see clearly. You, you can discern a man from a tree. You see clearly. You have the whole picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus did what Peter suggested, the entire plan of salvation would be undone. And all along the way, this is the temptation that dogged the steps of Jesus all the way to Golgotha to bypass the cross. He was here to do the will of his Father so that you can enter into the picture of Revelation 5 and sing glory, glory, glory to the Lamb who was slain. The Lion of the tribe of Judah is conquered by way of the cross. Question, who's Jesus? It doesn't matter what people say about him. It doesn't matter whether other people give the right answer or not. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? This morning as you sit here, who is Jesus? Question, do you have a complete picture? Is your Jesus a plastic Jesus or is he the Jesus of the scriptures? Friends, you have to answer that question before you leave here one way or the other. One way or the other. Look, If you think Jesus is some religious guru who teaches profound religious principles, you are as deaf as the man in Bethsaida. If you think Jesus is merely a prophet, a great prophet, or even the greatest prophet of all, and that's all he is, you're as blind as the man in Bethsaida and as deaf as the man in the Decapolis. If you think Jesus is a mythical figure, a religious genie, you're as hard of heart as the Pharisees and you're still in your sins. My hope all week has been if you're in one of those places that God has declared and preordained that today is the day that your eyes will be open and your ears unstopped and that you'll fall at the feet of this Savior, this Sovereign Lord, this almighty God who came to bear the wrath of God on the cross, conquering sin and death, raised again the third day, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he rules and reigns now and forevermore. And when you die, you will stand before him. Either covered in his righteous robes or naked and bare to be judged with your filthy rags. Choose this day whom you will serve. If you're a Christian, and perhaps you've become indifferent, cold, apathetic, as regards the glorious gospel that you were just reminded of, if, if, if you're cold to that, then you need to go to the source, beloved. Return to your first love. Okay? Christian, seasoned Christian, 
Return to your first love. Only he can give you what you need to restore what you've lost. That is a fervent love and passion for the one who paid the price. Return to your first love. So if your eyes have been opened and your ears have been unstopped and you believe by way of faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, that is no less miraculous than the sight of this man being restored. It's no less miraculous than the ears of the man who were unstopped back in chapter 7. Salvation, my friends, is a miracle of all miracles. May we rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ.